And that's the kind of thing that was being pumped around the media and a whole sort of a new paradigm was being discussed. And, you know, with those kind of gains, it was looking back on it, it was foolish to just let it ride and keep on riding. But from the peak, seven weeks later, it had fallen 40%. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join our Facebook group to connect with our community of guests and fellow listeners. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Garrett Roche. Garrett, are you ready to rock? I am, Andrew. I'm excited to hear your story. We've even talked about it a little bit in detail before, but let me introduce you to the audience. Garrett is Chief Investment Strategist at Uxbridge Capital Advisors, a private wealth advisory firm in New York City. He assists high net worth individuals, family offices, and endowments with investment portfolio strategy, economic and market trend spotting, and portfolio and trading risk management. Previously, he was a global investment strategist at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, a senior research analyst and economist at PricewaterhouseCoopers, a strategic financial analytics manager at JP Morgan Asset Management, and a credit portfolio analyst at Garnett Capital Advisors. He holds a BA in finance and accounting from the National University of Ireland, as well as an MS in economics and an MA in public affairs from University College, Dublin, Ireland, and he is also a CFA charter holder and an FRM certified risk manager. My goodness, Garrett, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Well, originally, Andrew, I'm from Ireland, as people could probably gather from my resume, but I'm located in New York City. I've been here since 2004. I've worked on Wall Street pretty much since the get-go coming over from Ireland. And about five years ago, I set up Uxbridge Capital Advisors under my own shingle and help high net worth private clients with their portfolio decision-making process and help them navigate the markets and their retirement goals. Mm. And, you know, the day that we're recording this is... uh... September 23rd, 2021. And there's so much going on in the markets and the global markets and the U.S. stock market has been so high and the Fed's talking about tapering and there's so many different things. I think what would you say is one or two things that are on your radar when it comes to global strategy, global investing? Well, I think in this market, after the incredible 2021 we've already had so far, I think it, remain, it requires a very diversified approach on a global basis. I think United States investors, especially at the retail level, are probably very much underweight global stocks, European stocks especially. The headlines about GDP growth and slow growth in Europe per se with sort of bureaucratic impediments to the kind of growth that the United States is used to can sometimes uh, leave retail investors massively underweight, huge opportunities to capture gains, invest in cheaper stocks with 
equivalently global growth potential tied to emerging markets, just like a US company. And I think there's a lot of opportunities in Europe as a result that are not being uh, extracted by US retail investors and, and small portfolio holders. Mm. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, one of the things that when you look at correlations between the US and let's just take emerging markets where I am in Thailand as an example, you know, Thailand's definitely a lot cheaper than the US, like a lot of countries around the world. But we also have this problem that, you know, we tend to be more volatile in emerging markets. And therefore, if the US was to, to stumble, we really fall. And of course, after that fall, I think you could argue that there is, you know, a good investment thesis in, let's say, emerging markets in Asia that I know, you know, because of the population and growing wealth and all of that stuff. But how do you help, you know, an, an individual or a, a high net worth individual or a family office think about how do you make that allocation to those markets, you know, and, and understand what could happen to them if the U.S. was to go down? Well, if the U.S. were to go down, certainly there would be quite a bit of global contagion. And as you say, the, the high, higher risk pockets of the market tend to get hurt more when the hegemon goes down. That's probably one of the sort of concerns that's on the horizon around the withdrawal of quantitative easing and monetary support is that to Brent Johnson's milkshake theory about the US dollar that could really suck up to a lot of dollar liquidity around the world. That does expose emerging markets in a massive way. Emerging markets tend to be quite correlated to US inflation, and that's been something that's on the radar of many an investor in the United States. And it seems to be now coming into sort of more sharp focus from the policymakers, language from the Fed just today. And so when real rates start rising, and the Fed seems to start acknowledging inflation and withdrawing things like QE and talking about dot plots of raising interest rates. That tends to suggest that the hedges against US inflation like gold or emerging markets can certainly take a back seat. And it's, 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 it's probably time to look at things like energy, energy sectors are, are probably some of the best value sectors at the moment. There's a bit of an ESG overhang, but because of that overhang, a lot of the producers are, are reluctant to spend money increasing capacity. And I, I think it remains to be seen whether we can transition in a, in a smooth way to anything that's ESG compatible. While we're so, while the global economy and the industrialized economy is somewhat addicted to fossil fuels, and if there's a restraint for capex, and you can see it by the rate count, that's actually quite bullish for energy sectors and oil as, as a commodity. It's an interesting point, you know, when you think about people like first question for the listeners out there: Have you switched from driving to work from a petrol or gasoline? fueled car to an electric car? If you haven't, well, you're not alone. Most people haven't either. Mm. Next question is, have you stopped using plastic and plastic derivative products in your life? If they all come from oil, and if you haven't, many people, other people haven't also. Next question is, 
the food that you eat, is it no longer fertilized through products, fertilizer products that are derived from petroleum? If the answer is no, you have not reduced it, which is probably the answer because most agriculture these days, at least in the U.S., is like industrial produced, then uh, other people haven't either. And therefore, demand for oil has not really fallen that much. And when supply contracts, as you've said, you called it an ESG overhang, basically you've got a contraction in, in potentially in supply and it takes years to bring supply online in oil. So that's a very interesting area to look at for the listeners out there that want to pursue some ideas you know, related to strategy and all that. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment, thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to then tell us your story. Well, it goes back to the tech bubble of, of the late 90s, early 2000s. It was where I got wrapped up in, in the cell phone hand device maker Nokia, which was originally founded in 1865. I, I looked up and there it was 134 years after its founding. It's, it's becoming a hot stock because it's the number one cell phone hand device maker in the world. In 98, it took, overtook Motorola as the top maker of hand devices. And I got into the stock when it was already well on its way. It had been languishing on sub $5 a share since its ADR listing, at least. And I got into it around $13 in the summer of 99. And I think I bought more of it at $21 in early 2000 and rode it up to $31, $34, the peak, which from the first buy date to the peak was about 154% upside. So I thought I was a genius, of course. And the fundamentals seemed extremely sound. And any sort of you know, deep dive into the company of fundamental equity research would sort of be very, very bullish on the stock and uh, that the price was merely reflecting these strong fundamentals and strong growth outlook. And, you know, it, it, it comprised a, a huge component of the, the Finnish Helsinki exchange. It was, in, in fact, its, its revenues, I think, were something like 4% of Finland's GDP. <laughs> so, uh, and, and it was 70% of the Helsinki exchange. So. Yeah, it really was a, a banner stock, and uh, the performance to the peak was, of course, full of you know gusto and excitement. And of course, as we know, the bubble started to burst across the the telco landscape as well as the technology landscape, and it was really one for the ages. There had not been a, a similar bubble in many years. I mean, there. There had been in other, other kinds of investments, but not in, in stocks. And of course, the famous John Templeton words, this time is different, it's a very dangerous time. And that's the kind of thing that was being pumped around the media and a whole sort of a new paradigm was being discussed. And, you know, with those kind of gains, it was looking back on it, it was foolish to just let it ride and keep on riding. But from the peak, Seven weeks later, it had fallen 40%. And you sort of, you know, you want to hang on and you get caught up in a sort of a bull trap then where 
you go from sort of 21 back up again a little bit to sort of the mid 20s and you think okay maybe i'm okay maybe we can get back to somewhere near the peak and within the next eight weeks to sort of october 2000 it had gone down another 23 percent and that's then in fact brought by since purchase gains to only 21 percent so only in the summer of 2000, I was up 154%. By October 2000, I was only up 21%. And it was sort of, you live, hope springs eternal, and you're holding on now $16 a share, having been in at around 13. And you're hoping and you're hoping. And then by the end of 2000, it had gone up to $28. So it was a real roller coaster down the, the jagged edge of the cliff. And it was just enough to sort of head fake you into holding on rather than just getting the hell out of it. And you can and picture, you can picture as like a fundamental person saying, I still like the story. There's still billions oh, of people absolutely. in the world, <laughs> you know, they need absolutely. this. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, they increased their turnover fivefold in five years. They were 31 billion euro revenue company. They're, they were innovating, their R&D budget was substantial, they were developing devices, new models all the time, much faster than the hand device makers do today. Like they brought out a new version, you know, nearly every six months. And they were the first device maker to introduce a camera phone in North America. So they, they had that sort of mindset, that growth mindset, where you trusted management. A lot of the headline, uh, top line numbers were growing very well. And, you know, at one point you were up 150%. So, you know, why would you betray it? And you sort of get emotionally attached to the stock mm. instead of seeing that, you know, looking at the price chart even now, it has all of the characteristics of that sort of classic bubble chart that anyone can Google and look up the image of where the, the, the stealth phase, the awareness phase, the mania phase. And clearly I sort of got in at the beginning of the mania phase where the media attention started to come about. And a new paradigm was the peak, clearly. And now I was getting roped into these, these bull traps and getting sucked down into what eventually became capitulation with um, by the by you know, September 2001, I had lost about 60% of my original money. Mm. And I could have gotten out of it. So I rode it all the way up and all the way down, effectively, with massive, massive about faces on the way down. And it was a sore lesson. Uh, it was one of my first sort of personal investments in the early start of my career. And it was a lesson for the ages. So how would you describe the lessons that you learned from him? Well, I suppose not getting caught up in the detail of the single stock holding where you're focused so much on the fundamentals that you lose the, the forest from the tree, so to speak. I think the main lesson is to stand back and take a broader view. And my experience now tells me that even if you like a particular stock, say it may outperform within a sector well hold on let's let's ask is that sector going to outperform and then even if it's if that sector is going to outperform what what kind of region is it in what where does it derive most of its value and how's that region going to perform and so layering a fundamental view evaluation view from an equity research perspective 
layering upon that as a macro view that incorporates a broader picture, I think is the, is the, the more detailed answer to mm. the question. Mm. Maybe I'll just share a couple of things that I take away. I mean, I remember in Thailand, you know, in 1990, I don't know, probably 1995, I got my first mobile phone and it was a Nokia. And probably up until BlackBerry, really, I was just looking on the internet right now and the peak of BlackBerry was they had 85 million subscribers in 2013. So, you know, we go back to 2000, 2010 or whatever, when BlackBerry really, you know, was at a peak, whatever that, you know, when it was starting, that was one thing that, that, that really hit Nokia really hard. But it was hard to imagine that uh, Nokia would be so badly hit, you know, because we were all holding the product. I think about Peter Lynch's books like One Up on Wall Street that teach us to buy the products that we know and, you know, do some research on them. And, you know, if you did that with Nokia, you would have been happy to buy it. And so what I want to do is highlight two things that I thought about. One is stop loss. And I know as fundamental investors, we very rarely think about stop losses, but, you know, stop losses can bring value. And even if you decide you can, you know, you can look at a stop loss and say, okay, I'm going to automatically sell the stock or I'm going to automatically sell half of my position. Maybe it's just bad timing right now. Or you can do another point where you say, okay, I'm not going to automatically do something, but if the price hits X, in other words, it's fallen to X, I'm going to take the following action. I'm going to sit down and talk to somebody or whatever. That's the first thing, but even that doesn't solve this problem because, you know, if you sit down and talk with someone, you're going to say, I love this idea, stock is great, you know. That's the challenge of being an analyst. But the second thing that it reminds me of is the concept of portfolio construction and how critical that is. I did a, uh, an academic paper when I was working on my PhD, and uh, it's on the Internet. Basically, it's uh, 10 stocks are enough in Asia. And what I tried to show is that, you know, if you have a portfolio of about 10 stocks in Asia, you've gotten rid of most of the company-specific risk without giving up the potential to really outperform. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether that's, I always tell individual investors, you know, you should have about 10 stocks, any more than 10, and you can't really manage it as an individual. And any less, you're starting to expose yourself to individual risk of that particular stock. So you also kind of remind me of the portfolio construction and the importance of that. In addition, you know, you've talked about the macro aspect. Is there anything you would add to that? Yeah, no, I think, you know, I, I concur with your concentration of portfolio. I think 10 is enough. I think we're, we're very fortunate these days to have sector ETFs and country ETFs that you don't have to go and buy a specific company and do all of the research and bear mm. the single stock risk that doesn't get necessarily rewarded and you're exposed to earnings announcements and management hiccups and I mean look at Facebook today the headline risk was abounds today with Facebook mm. reportedly uh, giving itself favorable news through its own feed that wasn't well received by the, by the investment community today so, you know, whereas if you were in, you know, telecommunications or communication services ETF, that would have been hedged across a, a number of other mm -hmm. big players. And so, you know, you can get that diversification for, for 
very little overhead in terms of uh, you know, allowing iShares or, or Invesco to, to manage that portfolio yep. aspect for you. Yeah, that those tools just didn't exist in the early days. You know, going back to that Nokia time, you know, and that time when you started, you know, you just couldn't go, I'm going to grab a, an ETF of telecom companies, you know, just wasn't there. So you had to build that, yeah. now you don't have to. So based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I would say definitely take a step back when you're fully compelled about a narrative around a stock, especially a new type of industry like, like cell phones were in the day. So, for example, today one could apply similar caution around things like Tesla and electric vehicles, just as an example. Mm. You know, the, the fervor can take over retail markets and create classic bubbles like Nokia was, like tech was in 99. And I, I'd, I'd say take a step back, ask yourself, is this rational? Are you hearing headlines like this time is different? It's a new paradigm. And I'd always sanity check incredible momentum plays against the classic bubble chart that's, as I say, is available on Google Images and is one, mm. one to put on one's desktop sometimes. Yeah, that's uh, great advice. I think the other thing is that that I would add to that is just the fact that you look at, we look at stocks today and we cannot imagine their fall. Facebook, Google, Amazon, it's just, it's almost unimaginable that they would fall. Mm -hmm. And that was the same feeling that you probably had with Nokia at that time. Yes. One of the lessons, I suppose, when, when someone is, is the top dog in a particular industry, in some ways they've only one place to go, and that's down. They either maintain their top dog status, but that requires a, a very different type of management outset and behavior from the one, probably the management that got them into the top dog spot. And that's, that seldom is the case that they just turn over management and okay, we're gonna we're have a different management style to, to retain our top dog stuff. They usually keep taking risks trying to reinvigorate themselves and very often those investments go by the wayside mm. which is a case in point of, of nokia you know when motorola and research and motion with blackberry started to take market share nokia went and made what now seem very out on a ledge investments about trying to put games on the phones and recapturing the youth market with a gaming console on the phone and of course, if they'd spent billions of dollars on this thing and it didn't really hit, and they've been sort of wallowing ever since. Mm. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I, I just think this is such a, I normally don't add anything at this point, but I just want to, you know, highlight to the listeners out there that if you show me a company that is the market leader, I'll show you a loser. It's unbelievable. But if we were to make a long-term bet whether that market leader will continue to be the leader five or 10 years from now, the odds are dramatically in my favor if I bet that they're going to lose that market leading position. And I'm willing to take that bet. And if anybody listening wants to take that bet, contact me and let's make it. So 
<laughs> Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I have ambitions and goals around increasing assets under management and clients service. But both in terms of performance and new AUM under in the door. Hmm. I'm also developing some machine learning and machine learning techniques and algorithms around portfolio construction, which I'm excited to be involved with, which will employ some of the latest artificial intelligence techniques and big data techniques, which should help enhance alpha and, and portfolio performance and be a, a more sophisticated service offering for clients and prospects. Hmm. And where's the best place for somebody that wants to learn about your service to go? I'll have links in the show notes, but maybe you can just tell the listeners. Oh, sure. I'm on LinkedIn. That's Garrett Roche is my name on LinkedIn. And my website is UxbridgeCapital.com. Got it. So reach out to him. I'll have links in the show notes. Reach out to uh, Garrett on LinkedIn or go to Uxbridge. So listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join our Facebook group to connect with our community of guests and fellow listeners. As we conclude, Garrett, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Just stay vigilant and always remember the macro overlay. Great advice. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.